0: And the remainder of that portion of the confession goes on to talk about uh, the guilt of Adam's uh, sin, the guilty sentence being imputed to us, reckoned to us, forensically, legally. And then the corruption of um, Adam's nature is conveyed to us by ordinary generation. That's why we get sick. And uh, the moment that we begin to live, it's a progress towards the grave. And then, so you have the guilt and the corruption. And then the, the following section, deals with the misery so the guilt of sin and then from the guilt of sin comes the misery of sin and this of course is biblical and the way that the the devil lies to us is that uh, when one commits sin it will be uh, joyful happy but it's it, it's the exact opposite and sin always brings misery that's why heaven will be so happy because it will be a place of consummate uh, holiness now tonight's passage is numbers chapter 11 I mentioned this the other day. I, we're, this is um, Sermon 22. The intention is to plow through the book, and I, I think we'll do it by God's grace. And um, it, it'll take us a while. But for me, it's an intensely um, interesting book because it, it, it's almost as if every chapter introduces, even if it's related, we're looking at sin, obviously. It's interesting because there's something new. We saw the racism. And the the pettiness in the family of Moses with Miriam and Aaron in chapter uh, uh, um, uh, 12. And then in chapter 13, we had seen some other things. In chapter 14, we're looking at uh, an open rebellion uh, against uh, God. Lots of lessons here for us. I understand we're not a theocracy any longer, but um, lots of lessons for us. So Numbers 14, I'm going to read the entire chapter. Obviously, I'm not going to unpack all of it would be here until um wednesday but numbers 14 verse 1 hear the holy word of our holy god then all of the congregation lift up lifted up their voices and they cried and the people wept that night all of the sons of israel grumbled against moses and aaron the whole congregation said to them would that we have died in the land of egypt would that we had died in this wilderness why is the lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, of those who had spied out the land, they tore their clothes And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the Lord, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you have brought up this people from their midst, And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. And for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, Because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I have performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet they have put me to the test these ten times, and they have not listened to my voice. They shall by by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he is a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he had entered and his descendants shall take possession of it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow, set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel which they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. They will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt, a year, even forty years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all to all the evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. As for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing out a bad report concerning the land, even those men who brought out the very bad report of the land, they died by a plague before the Lord." But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive, and out of those men who went to spy out the land. When Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and then went up to the hill of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you, and you will fall by the sword, inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord, and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and they struck them, and they beat down, beat them down as far as Horma. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are our Father. You are a holy uh, God. You're altogether just. And in the person of your Son, you're altogether merciful to your people. Help us, Lord, tremble uh, at your word to be those who still yet do tremble at your word, and worship you with holy fear and holy reverence such that you would be glorified and we ourselves would be properly instructed. We pray these things in the Redeemer's name. Amen. We read from chapter 6 of our secondary standard, which we believe is a summary of the primary standard, being the Bible, obviously. And it has to do with the fall of man, how sin was introduced into the world. This is a Romans chapter 5. It came in through Adam, who's the first rebel, federal representative. And when Adam fell, in Adam's fall, we sinned all the New England primer. And so we believe in the, the doctrine of original sin. From the doctrine of original sin, or the reality of original sin, proceed all of our actual sins. So we're looking at a passage which records the sins of human beings. But not just the sins of any human beings. It records the sins of professing believing human beings. So these would be our religious forefathers, as it were. So if you're familiar with your Bibles, which I hope you are familiar with your Bibles, the Bible says, both in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, which is quoting um, the Old Testament, that the Bible is written for our instruction, every bit of it. And even this portion is written for our instruction. Um, this is alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1-14, in Hebrews 3 and 4. So we're, we're hearkening back to our religious mothers and fathers, as it were. And we're trying to learn from their bad behavior, their bad example. And the Bible will say about these people, the better part of the people, with the exception of the children... In the book of Hebrews, it will say that these people had an evil heart of unbelief. So this is a sin passage. It's recorded in the Bible so that we would learn from sinners and that we would learn from professing believers who are sinning, but by their sin, they testify that they are, in fact, unbelievers. The Bible says to to the lot of most of these people, again, in the New Testament, it, it says, in my wrath, I swore they would never enter my rest. God never has wrath on a believer. With a, with a true believer, he never has wrath because he's taken it out on Christ his son in our place. That's substitutionary atonement. On, on the believer, he only has filial or fatherly chastisement or discipline. This is a Hebrews chapter 12, 4 through 11. So when God rises up against his child that's sinning, he doesn't do it judicially or punitively. He does it correctively. And, and it's with a hand of love. But what we're looking at here for a bulk of the people is God is rising up as a judge because many of these people are, in fact, unbelievers. So God has judicial wrath against them. That's his offended anger, a holy anger. So it's written here for our instruction. We believe these things. I was debating whether to read in our liturgy, chapter 6 or chapter 14. Chapter 14 of our confession, I think this is correct, deals with the truth of faith, unsaving faith. What can saving faith do? Saving faith, properly understood, uh, receives and accepts and rests upon Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel. So when God the Holy Spirit gives us, takes away our stony heart, Ezekiel 36, gives us a heart of flesh, and then we hear the gospel, repent, look to Christ, turn to Christ and be saved, and then... Spirit wrought faith gives us the ability to see Jesus Christ to receive the promise of salvation that's one thing that faith can do so it believes the gospel promise but another thing that faith does or actually the the larger thing that faith does faith believes the word of god and so if you were if you were older when you were converted many of you were raised in the church i was raised in a roman catholic church i was not a believer until i was 26 but if you many times for a covenant child raised in a a Bible-believing Christian home—they've always believed in Christ. They don't have this demarcation that they can consciously say, "I was an unbeliever, and now I became a believer." But for everyone, whether you were raised in a Christian home or not, you have to be born again. But with the person that can say, "I thought like this as an unbeliever. Now I think like this." If that occurred to you later in life, you—you you know the experience. I know the experience. When the Holy Spirit gives you that capacity, that gifted capacity to believe his word, when you read the Bible, even the parts that you don't quite understand, you submit to them. And these passages early on in my walk, a judgment, this is a judgment passage. When we come to a judgment passage, I was terrified but, by it, but I believed it. I couldn't understand it all, but I believed it. If you tremble... At the threatenings of God's threats, you should rejoice. Because only believers can tremble at the threats of God's threats. It's a testimony that the Holy Spirit's inside of you. It's not a bad thing. When you tremble, when God says, be, be warned, and you're trembling here, it's a testimony that you're spiritually alive. If God makes a threat and you want to you're planning what you're gonna do playing golf later, that's a bad thing. So faith can tremble at the threats and the warnings, and faith can obviously receive the promises. So when we look here, it's a sin passage, it's a judgment passage. We can only rightly receive it by faith. Even some of it is pretty difficult to receive, to tell you the truth, because he's going to judge a a massive portion of the household of faith, and I mean judge by kill them. Um, When we look at what I just said, judge... By death. As a Bible-believing Christian, I hate to hyphenate that. There are forms of Christianity that don't believe the Bible. they are traditions-based uh, forms of I was raised in that form. It's what the church says. The church says this. The church says that. We are of the form of the Bible says this. The Bible says that. If you know the difference, it's a, it's a radically different form of church. I'm not picking on the church in my youth, but it's a different form the church says, tradition says, or the Bible says. As Bible-believing, as people that want to have a form of Christianity where the Bible says, this lesson here teaches us the wages of sin is what. Boy, boy. We talked about this morning, and I, I, I tried to talk about the solemnity Of ministering the word of God and specifically the gospel of God and specifically, specifically the gospel to the unsaved. That is a solemn business. It's a grave business. You can't do it lightheartedly. I would challenge the person, a Christian, to read what we just read, Numbers 14, and then and then tell me that this is something jocular or something light. And that you can be casual dealing with this passage. Can you properly deal with this passage casually? Can you make a joke about anything in um, Numbers 14? And I'm not picking so much. Most of us didn't come out of the womb straight into Reformed things. Many of us have been to other kind of churches where the minister is half a comedian, half a comic. Do you know what I mean? I suppose I am picking on that. Al Martin, a Reformed Baptist, says something like this. You're either a a, a prophet or you're a clown. You, You want a man who is not a clown. He's not a comedian. There's nothing funny about this. You want a man who's properly a prophet, who's solemn with God's solemn word, and particularly here. This is a wages of sin is death. We have a catechism question that says, what doth every sin deserve, both in this life and that which is to come? You know the answer? Every sin, we say, the Bible says, every sin deserves the wrath and the curse of Almighty God, both in this life and that which is to come. Now, as Bible believers, do we believe that? Do we believe, believe that? The wage of every sin... We're, we're going to descend down to what sin we're looking at, but we're just trying to get get it into our, our, our consciousness that this is a sin passage in a divine wage against sin passage. There'll be the extension of mercy true enough, but a bulk of it is the wages of sin is death, which is a Romans 6.23. And we should believe it because it is true. The Bible clearly says it. Experience proves it. And Christ came to take away the sting of death for us. So that's one of the primary doctrines. And um, what does God tell us through the prophet Ezekiel 18. The soul that sins... Go ahead, finish it. Must die. That's Ezekiel 18. So it's not just an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament truth. The soul that sins must die. And when you see God rising up and then exacting the death penalty, which he will variously, by plagues and so on, in the wilderness, when you see that, why... Ask yourself that question. Why must the soul that sins die? Why? Why? Now, many human beings would say, well, if you sinned against me, I would wink a few times, and I'm so kind, and I'm so benevolent. I would never exact the death penalty against you. Maybe that's the case. The problem is you're not holy. And the reason that God rises up against these sinners in the household of faith is because God is holy. He's righteous. He has to maintain fidelity to his holy law. So God would not be God if he just winked at sin. If he said, well, n- no problem, no worries. The Bible says that life is in the blood, that the, that the blood will atone for the sin. That it's without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So God is a righteous judge, ju- uh, God. What would you think of a judge that said to a man that was guilty of murder, let's say murdering his father, and he knew that he was guilty, and he just said, no worries, I'm so kind, go your way. What would you think of that judge? He would be a horrible judge. He would be an evil judge. He would be an unjust judge. That's what we're looking at here. We're looking at a form of patricide these people are rising. What do we call? What, what do we pray in our liturgy every week? We called it in the Roman Catholic Church, Our Father. We call it in the Protestant Church, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. And here we have a whole class of people that from the Old Testament to the New Testament called God their Father, Abba, Father. And what do they rise up in? Rebellion against God. That is a form of patricide. They're rising up in rebellion against their Father. So God would not be a righteous judge if he did not rise up and judge those who rise up against him. That's what this is. So as Bible believers, we're called to believe all of the Bible. There are parts of the Bible we like, and there are parts of the Bible we really find difficult to read. And frankly, this is one of those passages. A massive portion of the household of faith will be put to death for their sin, massive portion. Read Hebrews three, Hebrews four. The evil heart of unbelief. I swore in my wrath they will never enter my rest. A figure of heaven. You're not going to heaven. And so it's a sin passage, a judgment passage. We can receive it by faith, and we see that it's the holiness of God being ex- expressed against the unrighteousness of man. And I want to say something else that we 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 know. And if you've been to this church, you know what I'm going to probably say next. This is a sin of people in the household of faith. This is not the Amorite, the Hittite, and those kind of things. This is not the Canaanite. You, you, could, almost empath- you could almost understand if the worshipper of Chemosh rose up against Jehovah and said, I'll throw, overthrow Jehovah. You're a worshipper of Chemosh. We understand that. We would not be sympathetic when God, God rose up against you because we would be in solidarity with the true God but we would understand. But this is not worshippers of Chemosh that rise in rebellion against Jehovah. It who? Worshippers, supposedly, believers of Jehovah. This is, the, this is I would, to use modern language, it's people in the visible church. People in the visible church who rise up and try to throw Christ off his throne, as it were. If I could put it in the New Testament context. Is it possible to be in the visible household of faith to have the word and the sacraments, the oracles and the ordinances of God, and still yet be unconverted? Is that possible? That's possible. That's this. And then when that person who professes to believe sins, is their sin worse than the unbeliever? It's much worse. You've heard this. This is in in modern evangelicalism. I'm not really picking on this. I'm just stating a fact it's a very common thing to say all, all sin is equal to all sin. It's very common in the church. No sin is more aggravated than others. It's very common, not in Reformed churches, in evangelical churches. Beloved, that's not true. That is simply not true. It's not biblical. It is not true that all sin is equal. There are some sins which are more offensive before the face of God than other sins. Jesus says to Capernaum, uh, he, he says, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than you on the day of judgment. Why? Because too much is given, much is required. A teacher who's been given gifts, graces, calling, commission, uh, uh, um, and that kind of a thing, a commissioning, James 3.1, he will be held to a what form of judgment? A stricter form of judgment. So this is here for our instruction to make us tremble that we, we ourselves would not commit this kind of a sin, but they're aggravating their sins. They're aggravating our sins. My wife was raised a Hindu, so she herself was not an apostate when she was a Hindu. She was an unbeliever, but she was a faithful Hindu to her false god. You can only be an apostate from a true god in, in the context that I'm using it. So it's a person that professes to be a Christian, but then renounces or denounces Christ. That's an apostate. That's worse Both are sins. But we're talking about aggravating. This is here to show us how we, as professing believers, aggravate our sins. The the better part of the household of faith, subsequent slavery, they were apostate. Now, beloved, just because I'm Irish, you can't just blame it on that, or mainly Irish. I've got German sprinkled in there. If we look around... Is the better part of the church utterly faithful to the Bible form of Christianity? When you look at professing Christians, do you think, wow, there are people that love God and they love people, they love holiness, they hate sin. Look at the churches, you need a shoehorn to get them in on Sunday. Or not. I would argue Jesus Christ says in Luke chapter 18, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find what when he comes back? Faith. That's called apostasy. That's this. That's why God records this that happened then, and He puts it in the Old Testament, and then He puts it in First Corinthians. He puts it in the Book of Jude, right about verse twenty-four. This is for us. If our forefathers apostatized, then it is possible for those in our current ebook. Th- those are the concepts. Now let's deal with um, let's deal with the sin of rebellion, which is what we are finding. In particular. I'll give us a dictionary definition of rebellion. Rebellion is an act of violence or open resistance to an established government or ruler. I want to read that because that's what they're doing. Rebellion is an act of violence or open resistance to an established government or ruler. I'll give us some synonyms to help us see what the people of God are doing. Some synonyms for rebellion are uprising, revolt, Here's a word that's used quite commonly lately insurrection, mutiny and revolution in the particular case in which we're looking at we are looking at those kind of things uh, a resistance a violent resistance to the to the authority and the government of God I want you to think of that our secondary standard chapter two one through three fleshes out how we understand the Bible what it teaches up on God. God is most holy, most powerful, most good, most wise. When, by the time you finish chapter two of our confession and you're reading those Bible proofs, you're literally swooning on the ground. He, God is too high. He, he's too magnificent. And that's who they're seeking to overthrow. What do you think of that? These people who were slaves, they cried to God for 430 years, oh, save us. God saved them. God's bringing them into the promised land through the wilderness. God's got them right to the door to the promised land, as it were, and now they rebel against him. And they want to throw down God. Just think of that. We want to throw down God. Think of Luke chapter 14. What does Lucifer mean? Light bear or something like that? Satan was called the morning star. Amazingly, Jesus Christ was also called the morning star. In Isaiah chapter 14, uh, Satan is cast from heaven to the earth. Jesus speaks about this also in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7 or 17, I forget. Why was Satan cast out? He wanted to throw down God. This is the big lie of the devil from Genesis 3, 1 through 8 forward. This is, what, this is what the unbeliever believes. I'm going to throw down God, and I'm going to be God. I quote it all the time. The fellow in the, the Oklahoma bombing, I think he was former military, he quoted that obnoxious poem, Invictus. I'm the captain of my soul, the, the master of my own destiny. It's an obnoxious. Henley is the last name of the poet. I'm going to throw down God. This is the people of God. I'm going to throw down omnipotent God. That's sin. That's rebellion. Now, I want to bring in something else which is going to appear to you perhaps evident, but maybe not. There's another common saying in the church which I'm somewhat sympathetic with, but I want to correct something. It runs something like this. God uh, loves the sinner and he hates the what? Okay. In one way, that can be true. In another way, that's patently false. I'll first talk about the way that it's true. The first way that that's true is I'm looking right at testimonies that that's true. <laughs> He's had mercy on you. So he has loved you in Christ and forgiven you in Christ, and your sin has been reckoned to Christ. So he has extended love to you and satisfied his wrath on his son for your sin. But there's another sense in which I think that's patently false. And it sends the wrong message to both the believer and especially the believer as he witnesses to the unbeliever, and even, to the, and even to, the, um, to, to the unbeliever. You cannot have a moral activity without a moral actor. In other words, when God rises up to judge rebellion, he's not going to judge rebellion in the abstract. He's going to re- judge the actor of the rebellion, which is a rebel. If I could apply this to other sins, the sin of fornication, the sin of thievery, the sin of gossip, God will not rise up and judge those things in the abstract. It will be the actor, the moral agent. And there are only two moral agents, uh, angels and men. And the reference that we're talking about is sinful men. So it will not be rebellion in the abstract. It will be the rebel. So these are individual, morally responsible agents. I know I'm parsing it fine, but it, it's necessary for us because we send the wrong message. Oh, no, no worries. God will judge your fornication, you the fornicator. He doesn't even care. You don't need to repent. No worries. Everything's going to go well with you. It will not go well for you. God judges the moral agent, and the moral agent here is rising up, seeking to throw down a holy... Um, God, I've mentioned there, inside the household of faith, this is an aggravation of sin. I mentioned this, um, this being a species of patricide. Um, Jesus Christ says this. This is why I think that that we live in the last days. Oh, I know for a fact we live in the last days. (laughs) I'm I'm a millennial in my, my eschatological position, but I know for a fact we live in the last days. I know for a fact we live in the last hour. 1 <laughs> John chapter 2 says we live in the last hour. The moment Jesus' feet left the Mount of Olives, that's the last days. Now, where in that scheme we are, I don't know. <laughs> Take you pick U-Pick. I'll figure that out when I get in heaven. But I know we're in the last days. And in the last days, Jesus says, it's not going to be a time of superfidelity. It will be a time of sad apostasy. And it's going to be a picture of this. Mark 13 The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now this is what, what will be indicative of the times. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father will betray his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them be put to death. That's a sign of the apostasy. This is a lack of love in the professing church. God inspires Paul to tell Timothy. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, for profane. Now, this is the point that I want to get. For those who kill their fathers and their mothers. I mentioned it earlier. This rebellion is a form, a species of spiritual fratricide. Fratricide is the attempt, or the actual committal, of murder of a father by, by the son of the father. Or matricide would be the murder of a mother by the son of the mother. That's obnoxious. I don't even like to say it, but the Bible records it for us. When we step back and say, "Why did God execute justice on the better part of these people is for that? It is for that. And so it shows us the weightiness, the magnitude of the sin. Um, We can see even that practical sin in our own day and age. Now, why did these people, if you were with us last week, you know the answer. Why do we find the people in chapter 14 rising up in rebellion against God? What triggered them, we're told in the beginning? Moses sent out 12 spies, two were faithful, Caleb and Joshua, 10 were unfaithful to God. And they said to the people of God, it, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. True enough, just like God said. But giant people live there. And we mention in the Bible that there are four or five, six classifications or various people groups that are large people. And we have the, the um, Goliath of Gath. There were a couple of other named people. There's an Egyptian that one of, uh, uh, David's mighty man kills. The Egyptian's seven and a half feet tall. Og is a giant. There are giants. So I don't know how giant these giants are, but they are giants. And so the ten spies say, don't go in there. They're giants and, and we're all going to die. So essentially they argue for sedition um, to not obey the word of God and to obey the word of man. If you're a Navy, what is that? If you're a Navy, what's that? <laughs> aye, aye, Captain Bly. That's mutiny. That's mutiny. And what do you get for mutiny? You're going to walk the plank, buddy. (laughs) You'll walk in the plank. This is mutiny. They say, the commander says this. We say, no, we're going against the commander. So 10 people who are faithless get the whole lot of them to throw in their lot with them and rise up against Moses, Aaron, and Caleb, and Joshua. Beloved, um, fear is infectious. This is why you know some of the battles... God will say to his commander, listen, go count all the guys. And then say to the guys, anybody that's afraid, go home. Go home. We don't want you here. Anybody that's afraid, go home. In the Old Testament battles, why would they say stuff like that? We don't want you telling the guy next to you, we're not going to make it. We want, and then he'll, he'll go from like 30,000 to 300. I want those guys. So fear is infectious. Unbelief is infectious. These unbelievers provoke these people To cling to unbelief. And so that's what's happened. It's the faithlessness of one professing believer has infected the professing faith of another person to rebel against God. The obvious application is: if you're a homeschool mother or father, we homeschooled, my royal, royal we, my mother, my wife, homeschooled. We quote it all the time in the homeschool community, which is 1 Corinthians 15: bad company corrupts what? (laughs) Good morals. If you hang around with people that are faithless to God, I can already write the script. I can already write the script. Oh, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in John 3.16. What are you going to church for? You believe the Bible? You pray? What are you, out of your mind? You hang out with that guy? I already know where you're going. (laughs) And if you're a believer, you're going to the woodshed, and after you get a few lumps, come talk to me. I, I know what's happening. That's this. These faithless men incited other men, which is an aggravation of their sin. And so we need to, the application of that is, we should be very careful who we listen to religiously. And I know this is true. The internet's awesome. This afternoon, my wife has been away for a week watching grandchildren. So I work, not to feel sorry for myself. I work, and then I go home all day long to an empty house. (laughs) And then I listen to, on the internet, all these really cool theological seminars And this afternoon, I listened to one on Moses Amirault. It's hypothetical universalism. Only goofballs listen to this. So the internet can be really awesome. But the internet can be really awful, religiously. You can do www.destroyyourfaith.com. So we need to be very careful who we listen to religiously. Not everyone should teach. And you should not listen to everyone that says they're a Bible teacher. And then we also know when we look at these people infecting their comrades, as it were, in the faith, everyone's proselytizing. Everybody is. No one's spiritually neutral. So if someone says, you evangelicals, you're you're evangelizing everybody, I do not back off an inch from that. Yeah, I want everybody to be a Christian. Where's the Dalai Lama? I want him to be a Christian. My sister's a Buddhist. I want the Dalai Lama to come to Christ. So I make no bones about everybody gets evangelized. But everyone else is evangelizing me. Everyone proselytizes. Hawkins, Dawkins, Schmuckens, these other guys, they're all uh, proselytizing. What are they proselytizing for? Unbelief. The Muslim proselytizes, the Buddhist proselytizes, the born-again Christian proselytizes, the unbeliever proselytizes. We are trying to gain adherence. I believe, and if you don't think so, Just listen to them for five seconds. Oh, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. No, mine's just science. I just sat with my Hindu in laws who told me for a whole week. Oh, it's just Hinduism. It's not Hinduism. It's science. You're proselytizing. But I don't feel bad because you're getting Jesus. That's the game. And so we have the unbeliever trying to proselytize these people to be be believers. And then the believers do what? They throw themselves down on on their faces. No, don't believe these unbelievers. Stay with the word of God. And then how successful is uh, is Moses and Aaron? How successful is Caleb and Joshua? What happens to them for their fidelity to to the cause of of God? They almost get stoned. They almost get stoned. This is why when you enter the ministry, people enter, I'm not like this, but when people enter the ministry, I'll be wearing a tweed jacket with patches and a pipe. People will call me reverend. It's going to be awesome. If you think you joined the military for wearing a cool u- uniform and you're going to be squared away, what's the end game of the military, military guys? It's to break things and kill people and protect us. It's not anything pretty at all. And what do these guys get for their for their fidelity to the cause of God? They get threatened to be stoned. And certainly they threaten to stone Caleb and Joshua, but I think Moses and Aaron are coupled in there. There's a bunch of places where they threaten to stone Moses because they are unbelievers. And I will tell you what you already know. The flesh listens to flesh as its rule for faith and practice. Only graced faith listens to the Bible for its rule for faith and practice. That's why other religions are promulgated easily, because it's flesh to flesh. That's why even in a Christian home, it's not as promulgated as easily as in a non-christian home because it has to be received by faith which only the Holy Spirit can give so these fellows get threatened to be stoned you have a handful of faithful and then immediately God comes on the scene and God essentially through Moses rebukes the people and you remember why through Moses because Moses is the chosen mediator and what does Moses do? Remember earlier, Moses said, when the people were grumbling, 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 remember Moses, what Moses said? I just want to die. If you like me a little bit, I just want to die. He, he was having a bad day, and God had mercy on him, and sent him some elders, but he's having a better day now. Here are these people who are, he literally, God, God's man literally knows what they deserve, death. What does Moses do? Does he say, you are some so, sorry, sinning people, and off with it. he throws himself on his face and he pleads to god for their on their behalf he this is a type of christ he's interceding he's mediating for god's people this is what i was trying to get at with being properly solemn and properly sad and this is what i was trying to get at this morning when we share the gospel never to use sarcasm or mocking an unbeliever because it's indicative of contempt and not not love The mediator loves the people and the people are wicked, evil sinners. And the people are wicked, evil sinners that deserve death. And what does the mediator plead for? Mercy. That's what Christ does. This is why we can't look at the other person. You lousy, rotten sinner, whatever that sinner is, and you deserve. We deserve. We deserve. This type of Christ throws himself down. Oh God, don't give that. And then he says, remember your name. And he actually quotes what, what God says earlier in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. God says, I'm long-suffering. God says, I'm compassionate. God says, I'll forgive. So he pleads back the word of God. And then God says this, and then I promise I'll be quiet. God says, I will forgive. But it's a qualified forgiveness. I don't mean qualified in partially forgiving anyone one individual. When God forgives an individual, it's complete what I mean, it's a qualified forgiveness. Some of the people that have sinned in rebellion, they're going to die. They're going to get justice. On other people that are in this classification, they're going to get mercy. The class that we know for sure got justice were the 12, uh, 10 spies. They died by plague. And then we have the military-aged men. This is clear from Hebrews 3 and 4. They die. That's justice. And then God says, I'm going to bring your children in. That's grace that's mercy. So God exacts justice on one, and God extends mercy to the other. And has God done wrong? No. No. He loves those he loves, he forgives those he forgives, and he judges those he judges, and that's our God. And in it we see both the holy justice of our God and the holy mercy of our God. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.